0: I wanted to uh, preach today on something from the Old Testament because I'm real comfortable back there in the old days, (laughs) but the Spirit of God didn't let me do that. He wanted me to speak on something today that is near and dear to my heart, and that's why I've called this sermon, How Will You Be Remembered? I'm not planning on dying anytime soon. But I want to think about that from time to time, and I've noticed that as I get older, I do think about that more than I used to when I was much younger. In fact, in two days, I will be eligible for Medicare. (laughs) Who would have thought? (laughs) The America that I grew up in is not the America that I live in today. It is true that 60 years ago, we had racial injustice. 60 years ago, we definitely had corrupt politicians. 60 years ago, we certainly had unequal pay for women for doing the same thing that a man would do. And 60 years ago, we certainly had domestic violence. But quite honestly, the level and severity of these and other shameful facts of our history pale in comparison to the deeply divided country we live in today. At every turn, we're faced with anger and bitterness and even downright hatred for our fellow Americans. If you want to see a line drawn in the sand where there is little, if any, hope for middle ground resolution, if you want to push somebody's buttons All you have to do is mention these things I'm about to mention to you with a tongue-in-cheek comment afterwards. Listen carefully. Legal, illegal immigration. Shouldn't we share what we have with those less unfortunate? Gun control. Do you feel safer with the person sitting next to you packing heat? Abortion. Oh, there's one. What we have with abortion is we have an immovable object versus an irresistible force. It's not going away. Gay marriage. I like what Kinky Friedman said about gay marriage. They should be just as miserable as the rest of us. <laughs> global, global warming. Global warming. Well, of course, it's hot today. This is Texas, and it's July. Segregation. Isn't America supposed to be a melting pot? Affirmative action. People of color need to be put at the head of the line for jobs and education to make it fair for everyone despite qualifications. Taxes. I know that those responsible for... Uh, my welfare will spend my money wisely. <laughs> unions. Without unions, we'll never get really great quality of workmanship. Really? The Department of Homeland Security. Drones are a good thing. They can protect us from the bad people. The TSA. Oh, I don't want to be blown up on an air. So I welcome them to put their hands all over my body. Just do whatever you want. I don't want to feel safe. Public education. Spending more money on publication is the key to success. Really. Finally, our government. The U.S. House of Representatives and our Senate are both filled with men and women who care only for the welfare of the people they represent and not themselves. <laughs> Don't throw the tomatoes. Now, be honest. Be honest. When I mentioned those things, didn't you begin to get a little worked up? You start talking about any one of those topics with someone who doesn't agree with you, and there will be a downright fight eventually. But these are very serious matters. Wars have been fought. Men and women have died over issues like these. So for those who follow Christ, what is our role? What is our responsibility? Where do we fit in the picture? How are we supposed to behave? Do we hide under the covers in our home and hope that it will just go away? Do we ignore these topics and pretend they don't exist? Or even worse, do we verbally beat up everyone who is not like-minded? Is that our role, to go around beating up people because they disagree with us? Do we allow these things to eat us up inside so that we become bitter and resentful old people and young people as well? It's not an easy question to answer. But I can give you a very simple place to start. This is a spiritual book. You will never, ever truly understand this book until you have a new heart and a new mind, which only God can give to each of us. This is also not a book of suggestions. There are not a lot of suggestions in here. There are a lot of do's and don'ts in this priceless, precious book. It's God's expectation of who he is and what he expects from us. Realize, first of all, that earth is not our home. We're only here temporarily. Some of us may live to be 110. I think Mitch will be there soon. Where's Mitch? (laughs) God bless you, Mitch. We're not here forever. We're coming to an end someday. And when that time comes, how will you be remembered? How will I be remembered? We are in a spiritual war today. These things that I listed, those are not the enemy. Those are tangible things that we can see and feel and touch. Our true enemy is Satan and his minions and all the things that he's doing to upset us. He wants us to be divided. He wants us to be angry and bitter and resentful. That's what he wants us to be. But that's not, our, that's not the way we should be. Now, like most Christians, from time to time, I need to be constantly reminded of my duty as a follower of Christ. The Bible's simple yet foundational truths on how we live for Christ can be, at times, easily forgotten. So when life gets crazy, we need to get back to those verses that help us the most. So I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For those of you who don't know this, this is also known as the love chapter. I find it very interesting that yesterday morning at the men's breakfast that Michael talked about love and he used some of these verses. This morning I didn't teach my Sunday school class, Dave Vineyard did, did a great job. and He also spoke from these verses. And here we are again, the third time, I think God's trying to tell me something. This is what he wanted us to hear today. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to look at 1 Corinthians 13. I'd like to read the first three verses and comment on that. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, So as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, you have to understand that Paul has come a long way, as Ken mentioned last week, what he used to be and what he is now. And believe me, to get to this point in his life, God had changed his life. He's telling us that he understands our role as Christians and how we're supposed to behave in the world as Christians. So Paul had come a long way. He had gone from a religion to a relationship. And that's what we who are Christians can claim. We're not a religious people. We're a relational people. We have a relationship with our Savior. So if my motivation for what I do if the explanation as to why I donate my time and my resources, if the reason why I give my hard-earned money to those in need or less fortunate is done out of anything less than love, if I sacrifice what I want to do for the benefit of someone else and do it out of anything less than love, I am merely someone who does a lot of yelling but has absolutely nothing to say. Notice the words in these verses. It says, it profits me nothing. If I do all these wonderful things and I don't do it out of a changed, loving heart for God, I'm nothing. All my good deeds, if done for any other reason than love and concern for the person or persons I'm being kind to, in the eyes of God, it will return to me void. If you hear nothing else this morning from what I'm saying, listen to this next statement. The reason why we do what we do is infinitely more important to God than what we do. Let me say that again. The reason why we do what we do is infinitely more important to God than what we do. Let me put it another way. If our why is consistent with God's word, it should evidence itself in our what we do. Let me give it to you in another way. It's not simply okay to do the right thing for the wrong reason. It's not. Now, why is this important? Why is understanding this important for your life and my life as a Christian? Because it's a matter of the heart, and it's a matter of the soul. It's a matter of the emotions, and it's a matter of the mind and our thoughts. It's what's within us. It's our soul. Our soul is a combination of our mind and our thoughts. It's our being, and we have to understand this as Christians today. Love begins in the new heart that God has given us, And it begins in the new mind that God has given us, that we were given at the moment of salvation and will manifest itself in many ways. Well, how are they manifested? Let's keep reading. Look what it says in the next four verses. Love is patient. Oh, love is kind. I had no idea. It's not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I want to stop there. Love never fails. The Bible tells us love fails. And it t- t- tells us that kindness and, and being kind is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, a manifestation of God's love. Now, if there was ever a group of people in this world that we live in that should manifest the love and kindness of God, it's the people in this room. There, When people talk about us, when they talk about you and me, the, the word kindness, the word uh, considerate, the word... Uh, uh, godly, should be in their sentence. That's how people should see us, those of us who name the name of Christ. Now, unfortunately, we're born with a naturally selfish nature, physically born with a naturally selfish nature. We don't have to be taught to be selfish. It's something we pick up automatically. We are now naturally self-centered Creatures. It's even true in our own families with our own children. We spend the first two years of our lives with our children, teaching them to walk and to talk, and we spend the next 12 years telling them to shut up and sit down. (laughs) It's true, because we don't want to be bothered. I'm watching TV. Get away from me. I'm watching the car. Or you can come help me. We, We do. Shut up and sit down. We treat sometimes our children so poorly, and we treat our spouses so poorly, and we treat our parents so poorly. Poorly. It's our nature. It's our nature. It, it, it allows us to act like that. The old nature gives to get. The old nature asks, what's in it for me? Why should I help you? If I give, give you some of mine, then I won't have as much. Then along comes the new nature, and we finally understand this is a sin before a holy God. We're not supposed to be that way. So we want God to start changing us. I want to tell you a story about something that happened to me two months ago. Uh, Like most men, I'm not a shopper. I I have a mission. When I go to a, a store, I want to go in there and get it and get out of there. I don't want to shop. I was in uh, well let me I can give you a perfect example. God has given me a, a easy foot to to fit with a shoe. I can go in and uh, if I need some running shoes or well, walking shoes, I don't run anymore, but walking shoes or a particular pair of loafers or something I want, and uh, I keep thinking this is a microphone, but it's not. Is it <laughs> scary? I, I, I go into the store and i and I head right to it and I, it's not a matter of making it fit because I know exactly it'll fit I try on maybe maybe three pair of shoes maybe three and I'm out there I've bought it now when I go with my wife it's a whole new ball game <laughs> My wife has skinny long feet and very difficult to buy shoes for we go through no less than 20, and she'll she'll maybe get one, take it home, put it on, nah, I just don't like, it, and take it back, take it back. I don't do that. I don't take stuff back. If you're if you're a guy, he's like, okay, I'll just eat that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take it back. Honey, would you take it back for me because I don't want to go back to the store? So I'm in Walmart a couple of months ago, and I'm looking for some Velcro. Now Velcro's an item that. I don't normally buy very often, and I didn't really know where it was. And I'm looking around, and there's nobody there. I'm going up up and down the aisles, and I'm pushing my little cards, and where's the Velcro? I can't find it. And all of a sudden, I see this woman uh, in the distance, and it looks like she's stocking and uh, stocking some product. And my first thought when I saw her, and it's amazing how you can have a, a plethora of thoughts And it's such a quick moment of time. My first thought was uh, she looked like she had just crawled out of bed. Her hair was a mess. Her clothes were all wrinkled. Uh, She had no makeup on. She was rather scary looking. She also appeared to be indifferent toward me because as I approached her, she kind of looked down like, I don't want to talk to you. Uh, she seemed unwilling to help. She seemed to have the, uh, had to want to say something like, what do you want? Can't you see I'm busy here? She frankly seemed not to care about what I wanted. When I asked her where something was, she mumbled something and pointed somewhere. And I took a few more steps and, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like, okay, I give up. Now, where was that? Gets up. Right this way, follow me. Yes, ma'am. It didn't occur to me that perhaps the reason she was acting that way was because her husband had left her for another woman the day before. Or perhaps her child was in an accident that morning and she couldn't get to the hospital. Perhaps she couldn't pay her bills and maybe she was worried about how she was going to pay her bills. Perhaps her car broke down, and and she she didn't know how she was going to make it throughout the day without having her car. Maybe she was tired from working three different jobs to pay the bills. I don't know. And you know what the sad part is? I didn't care. That's the really sad part. I've been a Christian for 43 years. And I still have a problem with self-centeredness. Now... That thought lasted, that, that whole thing that I just went through lasted about eight seconds. And then it occurred to me to shut up and sit down. And that's what I did. I said, Thank you very much. I was very kind of you to show me that. Fortunately, I didn't express what I had thought three seconds earlier. You lazy woman, why don't you wait on me? You're here, I pay your salary. That was my attitude, but it quickly changed because it occurred to me, I can't do that. I want to do that. The nature wants to do that. I want to. I'm a self-centered person, you see. I want to strike out at her and make her feel bad because she had to get up from what she was doing and take care of me. Thank God I didn't. I came to my senses three seconds later. So there I was in Walmart, got my Velcro, and I was on my way. But it taught me a lesson about how I still struggle as a Christian with being selfish. And if you will admit it, and be honest with yourself, you probably do as well. And it's sad to say our culture is becoming void of kindness. Void of kindness. It seems everyone everywhere is stressed to the limit. It seems that we live in a society that's. Go, 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 be stressed, do this, do that, do this, do that. And it's not right. And because of that, I want to share some thoughts with you about kindness and the direction we should be moving as Christians. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2. And if you would, I'd like to tell you a story about kindness. Mark chapter 2, we'll be reading in verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, this is Jesus, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic, Carried by four men, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's where I put in parentheses in my Bible, duh, he is God. Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart, Jesus says? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Typically, typically these verses are used by pastors and Bible teachers to support the authority and deity of Christ. But there is also a message within the main message, and that's what I want to concentrate on today. You see, there are two acts of kindness in these verses. The first act of kindness is Jesus healing the paralytic, but the other act of kindness is the friend, the friends, the four friends of the paralytic. Allow me to paint this picture for you. We don't know who these four men were. We don't know what their names were. We just know they were friends. We don't know if they were engineers or farmers or cooks or professors from MIT or they were shepherds or they were carpenters. We have no clue what they were. But we do know that they cared deeply for their friend. We only know a couple of things about the paralytic. We don't know his name either. We don't know... uh, much about him, but we do know he was incapable of helping himself, and he was totally dependent on the kindness of his friends. We do know that. Now, these men were determined to get their friend in front of Jesus no matter what it took. You know, the Bible says there's no room. There was no room there. There was not even any room near the door. I can tell you from firsthand experience that the Kerrville Fire Marshal would never prove that. He would say, you are going to have to spend $75,000 for a sprinkler system before you allow these people to come in and hear you teach. Can't you just hear them? Can't you just hear Christians, some Christians today saying, if they were in this situation and they saw how crowded it was, and they're they're lifting their friend, and they're trying to get him, they've got to get him in front of Jesus, and they see the crowd, and they say, oh, it's too crowded. Let's go home. Let's come back another day. I don't want to go there. I I don't like crowds. I don't like being around other people. Let's not do that. You know, and it's not convenient either. No, they didn't do that. They were determined to get their friend in front of Christ so he could be healed. Perhaps maybe they said, Oh, this is too embarrassing. This is too embarrassing. What, what will my friends think? They, they, they figured out that if they could get to the roof of the building, they could tear up the roof and lower, lower their friend in front of Jesus, and that would work. What would that cost? Back in those days, the, the buildings that were had basically flat roofs, and they had stairs on the outside of the building. In the cool of the evening, a lot of times people would go up and sit on the roofs of their homes and, and enjoy the, the evening. And so that's what, they de- that's what they determined to do. So they wanted to let their friend down through the roofs. You can just hear, hear them. Would, would they be saying, we can't do this. This is destroying someone else's property. We're, we're going to have to pay for this. We'll get criticized. We'll get written up in the paper. We'll be on the evening news. We can't do this. They didn't do that. No, they were determined. They didn't care what it cost to help their friend. Can't you just hear one of them say, well, I'm just not dressed to be in public. If we're going to be on television, I don't want to have the right clothing on. Can't you, just, can't you just see that in modern day terminology? They were only concerned for their friend and not themselves. That's a true friend. Someone who is concerned for the other person. Imagine as they took the tile away, tore up the roof, And there's four of them up there. And you know they're leaning over, and they apparently have ropes on either corner, and they're letting their friend down very slowly right in front of Jesus. And imagine Jesus looks up at them, and imagine the look on their faces as they're looking down to Jesus like, Okay! Let's see some healing. And he did. He healed their friend. Jesus rewarded their faith by healing their friend. Hebrews 11, 6 says, He is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's what they wanted. They wanted to seek him so that they could have Jesus heal their friend. Do you have any friends that would show that kind of kindness to you? Do I have any friends that would show that kind of kindness to me? Are you a friend like that to someone else? Those are valid questions. My grandfather, my mother's father, was a paint contractor in San Antonio for well over 30 years, for the 40's, the 50's, and 60's. He taught me to paint when I was a teenager. Many times, many times, I would see him reach into his pocket and help people that didn't have anything. I would see him pay his employees money on a day that was not payday because they needed gas money or whatever. I saw him do some pretty amazing things to help other people to do jobs where he only got paid what it cost to pay for the paint. I saw that he was probably the kindest man i've ever known in my life well <clears throat> in 1969 he passed away and at his funeral the 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 church held about 300 people and there were no more seats in the church and people were lined up down the block they estimated there were 5 to 600 people at his funeral now why is that because He was remembered as someone who was kind to other people. And I remember thinking what an amazing testimony that was for him. Recently, we lost a very dear brother, Buzz Kerr. Now, I I knew Buzz as a friend. He never built anything for me, but you would have thought he built half of Kerrville. I remember sitting over here in that service thinking, wow, this reminds me of my grandfather's funeral. How precious those testimonies were of so many people that knew Buzz. What a testimony. How will he be remembered? I didn't know Buzz as well as his relatives did, of course, but he was a good friend, and I will always remember that as a great impact on my life as well. Like, Wow, I want to be remembered like that as a kind and gentle and considerate person. This is a Bible church and we come to a Bible church typically because we are serious Bible students. We care about the importance of the gospel. We don't accept the social gospel. Let me tell you, let me put a caveat on that. We don't we don't accept the social gospel. We do reject the notion that good works will uh, earn us a way into heaven. It doesn't work that way, and we reject that. But we could certainly learn something from those churches who do push the importance of being kind to those in need. Now, they may not all have their theology right, but they sure do know how to treat people who need help. They might not know their eschatology or their sanctification. They may not know their premillennialism. They might not know if they are covenant theologists or dispensationalists. But I'll tell you what, they know how to help other people and to be kind to their fellow man. We could learn something from that. Consider how you might be remembered and live the kind of life as someone who always demonstrated kindness. People may not always remember your name, but they will remember how you treated them. How will you be remembered? Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we come to you realizing that we struggle every day of our lives with what we want to do. We have a goal in this life, a duty in this life, according to your word, to be kind, to demonstrate that particular fruit of the Spirit, to show someone that we genuinely care, that we genuinely love them, and that our mission in life will be to bring honor and glory to you by doing that thing. So today, Father, I ask that this short and simple, to-the-point message will ring true with each of us and we will, with God's help, be more kind, be more considerate because we know that one day we will die too and that we want people to remember us as being kind and considerate and loving people. Bless us, Father, as we sing to you now. May we bring glory to your name and honor to your name. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.